This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I'm doing media training. I'm really engaged, sort of like I'm a Twitch streamer. Ba ba ba. Fortnite. Whoa. <laughs> or you're trying to get me to buy a timeshare. I can't tell which thing. What if you check out my live stream from my condo in Florida? Let's buy a timeshare together. What if we bought a timeshare together? We could share our time there. Okay. What? I'm not good at sharing. Though. I'm just looking at the chat. I think we have to do the thing. Do the thing. Do the thing? What thing? Where you tell people about oh, the welcome stream. to Jesus. our live bonus recording of Overdue, the podcast, where uh, some of you who are our patrons are getting to hang out um, and chat with us. We will be monitoring the chat throughout the episode as we talk about Austerlitz by W.G. Sebald. I believe... Or Sebald, maybe? I thought that you would know the name of the guy. That I know how it's spelled. Let's say Sebald. Sebald. Um, and he liked to be called Max. He hated his first name, which was Winfried, because it was too close to Winifred. That's reasonable. That's canon. I yeah. looked that up. Um, we, would be, we are reading this book because of Maria, uh, one of our patrons. Maria, you're in the chat. Thank you so much. I just saw you. Um, Ooh, something and... from Norway is here. Whoa. Interesting. We're going to get distracted because this is a pretty lively chat right mm -hmm. now. No, that's fine. Um, but yeah, we're here to talk about this book. And if you are listening to this after the fact, this is the podcast where each week one of us talks about a book that we read to the other person and you, the listener, reap the benefits, <laughs> I suppose. Such as they are. We've got two things working against us this week, which mm -hmm. is we're recording in the afternoon, mm -hmm. which is always weird. Usually we record at night. Like six hours before the show goes out. And we are literally a foot and a half apart, and we are often dozens of city blocks apart. I'm not looking at you, and that's how I'm dealing with it. Yeah. Um. So it's a cool vibe is what I'm saying. Cool mm -hmm. vibe for today's show it's for very a cool chill. book. Mm -hmm. You so, want to go? Sure. <laughs> I want to start doing the show. Um. So uh, W.G. Max Sibald. Hated his first name, like I said. He was born in 1944. He died in uh, December 2001. And I guess we can start with how he died because it was very sad. Yeah, he, it's very sad. He had an aneurysm in the car with his daughter and just died instantly. And then the car crashed. And his daughter was fine. But yeah, technically, he didn't die in the car crash. He died slightly before. Yeah. And like tragic death. And also like he was what? So he's in his 60s? 50, um, he was 50s? late 50s, yeah. Yeah, so he's been very well regarded or had been for like during his in his lifetime. Like he's not like someone a bunch of people just discovered him. Yeah, you know? I guess because um uh this book had come out in November of 2001. Yeah. And there was already some like Nobel Prize chatter going around and then like a month later he passed away. So that's 
That is too bad. That is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. That is very unfortunate. Yeah. What else do you know about him? Um, So he was born in 1944, and that makes him part of this very first generation of um, German kids who were born like after World War II was over. Mm. Um, So... After the war in Germany, partly, you know, partly because of laws that were imposed by the people who had conquered Germany and partly um, because Germany itself was trying to move past the war, there were some laws passed about um, banning Nazi imagery and and symbols and slogans and uh, doing some other things to just kind of like put the war behind the country. Yeah. Um. But this first generation that came up after, um, sometimes they're called the 68ers, which is after the year that th- there was like a lot of both in America and in Europe. There's a lot of like unrest in 68, and a lot of protests about about things. Oh, like as and, they hit adulthood. Right. And, yeah, and okay. in Germany, part of it was like, you know, you, our parents did this this horrible thing and we're kind of taught about it in schools, but not really. And like, how do we how do we do a better job of making sure that kind of thing doesn't happen again? And so there, there are a lot more um, laws in Germany banning that sort of stuff. There are um, monuments and like museums, not glorifying Nazis and Hitler, like some of the Confederate monument stuff in, in the U S but trying to teach people about what happened and why it happened and, and um, there are also laws uh, banning Holocaust denial. So, like, even the far right conservative party in Germany, like, uh, recently had a leader ousted because they were talking about Holocaust denial. So, like, even the most racist, terrible <laughs> political organization in Germany is <laughs> can at least admit that the Holocaust happened, which is better than you get in in a lot of places. Yeah, I feel like we've we've hit a couple of these books in the past like year, like I read the book thief and there was even a little, even though it was dealing with other things when I read the new life, I was just thinking about this kind of central and, and Eastern European experience in the mid to late 20th century. Um, and people are, these authors are really interested in how to grapple with. It's not, it's not the same as when we talk about slavery being America's original sin, like we did for the gone with the wind episode. Right. But there is this, you know, there's a very understandable strain of like of art that is attempting to both record and explore this obviously catastrophic event mm-hmm. in their nation's history. Yeah. Um, there, I saw a little bit on um, Sebold's approach that contrasts him with another writer named Primo Levi, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and there's this idea that like the Holocaust might be too terrible to even talk about directly. Right. Um, which we'll talk about how that factors into this book in particular, but there's mm-hmm. like a only a couple sections are about anything that literally took place. The rest is a lot more about time that was basically stolen from people and information lives that were taken and what's not there as opposed to the wealth of literature that does exist that is also trying to shed light on what literally happened in mm-hmm. camps and things like that. Yeah, there was a um I think it was a piece in a New Yorker I read just about why you should read <laughs> these books, like why you should read Sebald in particular and it it talked about how 
he didn't often talk about it directly like he would use imagery to like talk about something else but also leave no illusions as to what he could be talking about so he was talking about um the passage that that they highlighted in this in this article was about silkworms yeah, and just like yeah. and how they how they are used and bred and killed i think that's from his book rings of saturn yeah i believe that's that's true yeah and if you it's one of those things where if you read it in a vacuum, you're like, oh, it's just a passage about silkworms. But when you read it in the context of anything regarding the Holocaust, your brain makes it click. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, his his father had served in the war, obviously, which you take for granted. I think his, his father was part of the army that invaded Poland. Yeah. Uh, so he had been in the German army before it was, you know, the Nazi yeah, German yeah. army and then stayed in it. But um, yeah, so I brought up the the um, 68ers thing, not because I think Sebald was like particularly prominent in this movement, but because he came up in it. And I don't I think you should have that context when you're talking about his, his work. work. Yeah. 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 Um, I know this book came out of uh, a show he saw on the BBC. So he lived in England for like 30 years. He was mm-hmm. a professor in England. Sure. Um, and he saw this show called What Happened to Susie? which was a whole feature on this thing called the Kinder Transport, which I had not necessarily heard of before. Kinder Transport. It's like... Is that the the German version of the Magic School Bus? (laughs) Um, (laughs) In a... Sort of. So in 1938, um, uh, Britain, like, passed laws that laxed a bunch of immigration rules for uh, kids under 17 from the continent. Okay. To... Like, I think it was, like, up to 10,000 that they could take in if you came unaccompanied. Okay. So, it was, like, parents in, you know, Central Europe, uh, often, you know, Jewish parents who were just sending their kids away so that nothing would happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this documentary was about this woman named, Su- woman named Susie who had been sent away with her twin brother uh, and then, like, 50 years later found out that her parents, like, her mother was jewish and died at auschwitz and her dad served in hitler's army but she didn't know that until later because she'd been sent to britain as like a three-year-old or something Mm -hmm. so that is the the pretext for this novel i think the the main character whose name is austerlitz um has a very similar experience and it seems like sebald really drew on inspiration from from that sure um, so yeah, the only other stuff I really had to bring about him was about his, um, his writing style and also, um, how translations were handled. And so he had, um, do you have the name of the translator to hand? I know he had one or two that he used for Anthea most Anthea or Anthea Bell. Yeah, there you go. Um, so the, those were like the official sanctioned translations and were closely supervised by him. So it's not a, not a thing like we get sometimes where it's being translated, after the fact without the author's involvement no cuz his language is very particular <laughs> yeah right so he um in in the original german and i i know in the original german in this book there's a sentence that goes for like seven and a half pages is we'll that talk in about here it. okay yep. cool 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 mm-hmm. cool but um he sort of intentionally used this old fashioned highfalutin german like a mode of of german language like just to draw attention to it and sure um because he describes his work as a as documentary fiction which is a sort of mix of fact and fiction i think that's why he's using that sort of antiquated traditional language like further blur the line between um 
between fact and fiction. And that's that's most of what I've got about him. Yeah, there's a there's another thing to mention that there are photographs throughout this book. I read the Kindle edition, so they're still in there, but I don't know how uh I don't know how big they're supposed to be on the printed page. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are photographs in there that the main character references a lot. Like he will say he took photographs of a place and then they'll be in there. I think there's a book by Jonathan Safran for, for, for uh, extremely loud and incredibly <laughs> close, which is not the one that you read. You read everything is. No, I read the other, the other, the one. other one. <laughs> uh, I think there's photography in that book and it's, you know, it's not a revolutionary thing, but it is a hallmark of Sebold's work. And yeah, the idea is that he is, taking a character through a bunch of real world histories, but you're never quite sure where the line is. Like, mm-hmm. where is he maybe making up a bit of history or a character or a person? Um, for instance, there's a minor beat in this book where the character, the Austerlitz, the, I guess, protagonist, we'll talk about it. Um, <laughs> he uh, mentions looking up his last name, and finding that it was Fred Astaire's last name, which is true. Apparently, Fred Astaire's last name was Austerlitz. I did not know that. Huh. But it's that kind of like little brushes up against the real world where you're... I was I was reading reviews that are like, who, who knows how much of this is real or fiction? I was like, why do people care about that? It's a book. But then I was like, yeah, there are a lot of little facts that it might be helpful to know <laughs> if right. it's real or not. Um. Uh, just some some notes from the chat. Amanda says anything called Kinder Transport in 1938 is bound to be more sinister than the Magic School Bus. Mm. Um, and then Hannah says that um, this is still happening to migrant children in the U.S. Like oh, the sure. Stuff we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so. sure. Um, Grace wants to know about the Deathly Hallows thing. It's just that that book is a good thickness to use as a as a stand to elevate Craig's microphone. Yeah, for those of you who are just <laughs> listening to the audio version, um, I've I've propped up our mic stand so that I can use it without bending over too much. Um, I'm not quite ready to ruin my back for the podcast. Right. So, um, at like just to segue into book talk, like we said, it came out in late 2001, and um, so in in the U.S. Um, Austerlitz won the 2001 National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction and the 2001 Salon Book Award in the UK. It won the 2002 Independent Foreign Fiction Prize and Jewish Quarterly Wingate Literary Prize. And then uh, Anthea Bell won the 2002 Helen and Kurt Wolf Translators Prize, um, which is awarded by the um, by an institute in Chicago. So there you go. That's what I got. Great. Do you just stop talking now? Yep. You look like you're done. You're just going right. to leave me here. <clears throat> no, Andrew, no. My leg's asleep. I'm just going to be... Oh, no. Andrew's gone. Hey, everybody. I'm here by myself. I'm Let me back. tell you about a book called Austerlitz. Um, the perspective is that of an unnamed author that may or may not be Sebald himself talking to a man named Jacques Austerlitz. And Jacques Austerlitz is a guy that he met in Antwerp in Belgium in the 1960s. And I, it jumps around a lot, but I think what we're supposed to take away is that you're reading this book and the author is writing down notes in the late 90s, having talked to Austerlitz for several decades. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and meets him in the 60s and while they're like in a waiting room at a train station and Austerlitz just starts going off about the architecture and the building that they're in and where it all came from and he's a lecturer so he's pro I just made a note he is prone to lecture <laughs> like <laughs> um we get two early lectures from him where he is talking about this idea of standardized time Okay. And how it wasn't until the 19th century with trains that time became truly standardized. I think that's that sounds like a 99% of visible episode think, or something. Yeah, I, I, I feel it, like I've heard that somewhere. Um, but it talks about how that... There was a little bit of this in The New Life a couple weeks ago about how that kind of took away a freedom from just people like you couldn't just live on your can't live on your own schedule you gotta live by the clock my but man just, so this is gonna get a little existential but time exists whether you're like keeping track of it or not yeah but what are you using to keep track of it I think mean, about personally, it personally i guess my apple watch oh my god That's my apple my, talking about. my apple watch series two <sighs> <laughs> so this is a large so there's a couple parts where Austerlitz is lecturing and I there's a fine line between deep philosophy and getting high I think because there's is there just, <laughs> well that's a good point um, because one of the main themes of this book is that uh, in all of the places that we go um, there are like past versions of events or of our lives or of people that are with us like as when you think about them like mm -hmm. in that in in a very kind of hokey uh like touchy feely way like i'm walking through like my childhood i'm walking through my childhood home and i am thinking of like my grandmother who lived there or uh -huh. something like that um but also he goes on this like whole thing i'm going to try and find it he says time is by far the most artificial of all our inventions so he goes on this list, and this is where I was like, am I high right now? He's like, why do we measure time by the planet's rotation and not how long it takes for a tree to grow, Andrew? Mm -hmm. How is how do we know the sun is a reliable source of measurement? Because mm -hmm. it's not. It's closer to our equator than other parts of the Earth. But mm -hmm. we all just agreed on arbitrary time. Mm -hmm. Think about it. I am thinking about it. I don't think I'm high enough for this conversation. <laughs> he also says, if Newton thought time was a river, where does that river come from and where does it go? Where does it come from, cotton-eyed Joe? <laughs> I mean, I, this obviously, so it snows time up in the mountains yes. and then the snow melts and it flows down the river. Yeah, down when the snowpack melts. The time ocean, yeah. Yeah, but w due to climate change, we're running out of time pack at the top of the mountains mm -hmm. yeah, yeah yeah it's very thin time pack. yeah um and then he raises this point and, and this happens to Austerlitz throughout the book um that the dead and the sick he says are outside time uh for a certain degree of personal misfortune is enough to cut us off from the past and the future and he el elaborates that idea of like if you're in a hospital bed or if you're like convalescing or anything like that or even just when you have a really bad cold i suppose mm -hmm. like you get out of your routine you're not doing the things you normally do. You're just like all you're just all senses and time doesn't 
function the same way. I guess because my wife, Susanna, is, I don't know why I said it like that, is out of town this weekend. And when she's out of town, I just kind of come unmoored from things like mealtimes and bedtimes. Yeah. And I just kind of like live my life. Yeah. But not... I make it sound like it's fun and really I need I it's need unsettling. some kind of structure imposed on my life by someone <laughs> or something. So why is this important to this book? Why does Austerlitz I don't know, you tell time me. so much? Um, it's a rhetorical question. Oh, okay. Um he is making this point that parts of his life he does not have like easy access to from his memory and parts of history we interpret differently based on where we are in our own lives and as he's moving throughout this book as he's telling us stories and as he's telling us about different places that he's been he is always aware of you know oh i'm in this train station when they dug up all the ground for this train station there are a bunch of dead people in there what were their lives they were buried there and now we have to think about that as we're like using the train. I mean, we don't have to, but <laughs> that's kind of his brain. That's kind of what he's thinking about. There's sure. a melancholy to it. Uh -huh. um, that is, of course, in the specifics of this book, tied to the fact that a, more than one generation of people were literally just erased yeah. from the planet. Mm -hmm. So he's met our narrator. He's befriended our narrator. And is just going to tell him about his life for a while. They hang out in the 60s and 70s. They're, they're talking about... That this... makes it sound like they time traveled back there to hang out. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> no, they were hanging out in the 60s and 70s. And then, you know, they went to like a fort together where that eventually had been turned into a concentration camp. And it's this idea of like you built this thing to be a, a source of protection and all you did was like show where the weak spots are and then they took it over and then right. they used it for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and then he disappears for like 20 years, Austerlitz does. Okay. And our narrator... Why do you keep doing, doing that, that? Okay. when you say words like narrator or protagonist? So we don't know who the author is. It's never elaborated it's on. It's WG... Yeah, Sibald. but in fiction, we don't know who is, like, telling us this story. Okay. But I would say 80% of the book is first person from Austerlitz with occasional, like, I was walking, he doesn't say this, but I was walking down the street and I started thinking about time and it sort of sounds like I'm high, said Austerlitz. Like, <laughs> it'll just be in the middle of a block paragraph, which this book mostly has no indentation mm -hmm. and no chapter breaks. Mm -hmm. It really is nuts and hard <laughs> to follow at times because it's this like multiple layers of story out of Austerlitz's mouth through the brain of our author. On a scale from like Dan Brown to Infinite Jest, how difficult is it to like how difficult is the act of actually reading it and following it? It is it's not it's some passages of infinite jest okay um it, it is to me in my experience it's reminiscent of some beckett novels but being a little bit more realistic i'll mm -hmm. say um less overtly poetic but in the 90s they've reunited and it feels so good and they they reunite at like an optometrist's office or something 
and it's a place to see and be seen. Yeah, see and I think there's like saw. supposed to be a thematic thing about vision and impaired vision and what we can and can't see or something going on there, which is why they're reunited there. Okay. Um, and Alistair Leitz is like, yo, I've had a wild 20 years. I need to tell you about what I just discovered about my life. I need you to be that dude who listened to me in the bar in Antwerp. Okay. How and far through the book are we when we get to this stuff? Maybe a third of the way through. Okay. And I don't, I personally didn't feel like the book was really cooking <laughs> until 50% of the way through. Okay. There are um, books like that. There are. And, and even then it's like, there's not really a plot. Like he's just telling us discoveries that he made about himself. So we find out that when Austerlitz was younger, um, he was raised in Wales, and he was raised by a priest named Amir Elias mm-hmm. and his wife Gwendolyn. Okay, and he was he went by the name David Elias. Now it's Welsh spelling that is D A F Y D D. I presume that is the Welsh spelling of David. Okay, I think it's a very good spelling of David. It's a pretty dope spelling of David, mm-hmm. um, and. This it is at this point they're in Wales. It's World War II time because I alluded to the Kinder transport thing, which is definitely how Austerlitz got there, even though he doesn't know it as a child. So he grows up with this priest. He I think he knows they're his foster parents, but they never tell him what happened to his real parents, and he's not really allowed to go anywhere or like learn about the outside world. They're not mean to him. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to keep him safe. For reasons that he can't really comprehend. So okay. he does a lot of reading. He learns about the world through books and feels totally comfortable about that. Um, the The priest uh, gives a lot of sermons about um, the sins of man. And I can't, I was just struck by like, if I were a person of the cloth during World War II, I don't know how I wouldn't just be bummed out all the time, every Sunday, just trying to tell people about the light of the world while death and destruction yeah, reign supreme. Yeah, I feel like, you're, you're, like everything happens for a reason gets really uh, tenuous when yeah. that is the stuff that is happening. And there's this moment where, so he would travel like the countryside of this region in Wales and and give sermons in different villages and stuff and he's supposed to give uh, a sermon in this one town but before he gets there it's bombed out mm-hmm. and uh Austerlitz, like as a kid like sees the people who maybe were supposed to go to church but didn't and they're like dead on the ground and he gets this like old testament justice vibe from it that kind of shapes him for for much of his life mm-hmm. um and Again, like he he develops a, a good relationship with these people that are raising him, and then World War II ends, and they send him off to like school where he can properly like study and everything. Um, but his foster mom dies, and then the priest that causes him to question his faith, as that might, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you made it through the war, and then your wife dies, and then he kind of he literally loses it, and he has to go to like an asylum. Right. Um, and Austerlitz is like, he's going to school. He is fine. He's not really making friends. He's keeping himself away from people uh, emotionally. Like, he gets some respect at school because he's good at rugby. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, and he says, the fearlessness I displayed in rugger matches, as I remember them always played under a cold winter sky or in pouring rain, very soon give, gave me special status without my having to try for it by other means, such as recruiting vassals or enslaving weaker boys, which is just like, I guess it was Mean Girls back there. <laughs> I don't know that I, there's someone that I can think of from my high school that was just like so good at sports that everyone is just like, he's cool. He's a cool guy. I mean, hmm, maybe that- there was that one guy who was in eighth grade when I played seventh grade football, played seventh grade football, played football for one year and then never played again. And there's that kid. I think we've talked about Lee Kepford on this podcast. Have before. we? I think so. <laughs> but uh, he was really mean to me. And but he was like good at sports. And people liked him because he was good at sports, even though he was a jerk. Yeah. That's always the way. Yeah, he was mean to me, though. It's not. I'm it's sorry. fine. You're fine now. As far as I know, he's. He's fine. It's, he's like, learned lessons, yeah. improved as a person. Yeah, maybe, or, maybe not. But, or not and gotten his. Yeah. Anyway, maybe. So he, he kind of could. Could be that guy. Been that guy. Yeah, sure. Um, so this his whole. Kara world... says we definitely have talked about Lee Kepfer on this podcast before. <laughs> I am I, the thing is I am sure he never thinks about me like never ever even oh. once I bet he does I needed to do something to like really make him think about what he's done but yeah, I don't know maybe I can plan some kind of prank let's track him down let's plan a prank um as Austerlitz is prepping for graduation he's getting ready to take his exams and a like a principal or someone like pulls him into his office he's like hey listen I know that you've been raised. You're you're going by David Elias. Cool, cool, cool. Love mm-hmm. how you spell your name. It's a good spell. I need you on your test to write Jacques Austerlitz because that's your real name. And if you don't, then like none of this counts for you getting jobs later. And he's like, that's weird because that I didn't know that was my name. Does he really not know that's his name? He did not know that was oh, his name because he was sent to Wales when he was like five. Oh, boy. And um, and he's like basically compartmentalized whatever his toddlerhood was. Mm-hmm. And he tries to keep it a secret for a little while, uh, eventually like breaks and tells one of his prof- like kind of favorite professors. Um, and it just it sets him off on this course that then the rest of the book delivers on where he's like who were my people what is this name why was i sent here uh the foster father ends up passing away in the asylum so that he can't tell him anything that he knows about it um and i don't like i was just struck by the the way that like bureaucracy and legal precedent and legal need like intrude on identity in that moment. Okay. Um, like, so, okay. So I go by Craig, right? Yes. My first name is Mylan. His, your full name is Mylan Craig William Gidding. Yes. And, and if people want to try to get bill going, I have tried several times. It's never stuck, but maybe we can make this happen. It's never going to happen. Don't yeah. you dare anyone. All right, so what bill, what were you saying? I <laughs> use Mylan on a lot of like, uh, official forms and stuff because it is my birth name, right? And mm-hmm. I don't want it to confuse anyone, right? And I want to get paid. <laughs> sure, that's important. <laughs> uh, 
but it is not who I am. It is not a name I answer to. And that's like a low level version of this. Uh, now the whole chat is going wild because <laughs> I said what my real name is. Um, the secret revealed, the secret revealed. After 300 or whatever episode. Almost. Yeah. Um, and this like high level stuff, which is, this has to do with like immigration policy and it has to do with like, I don't know when folks change their name when they get married or when they don't change their name when they get married. I was reading this article apparently in 2015, Andrew, Afghanistan was conducting its first census in like 30 years. Okay. But so many people over there don't even use surnames right. that it just became this giant battle to like graft people into a government system mm -hmm. that caused a lot of tension. Um, and that this book does explore how systems like that bureaucracies it it puts a otherwise benign bureaucracy like a hall of records on a spectrum with weapon weaponized bureaucracy and government that could lead to something like the holocaust um, well and then and, and you've got that debate happening now with the u.s government like there's a there's a ton of conversation about um how with the DACA program, the government says, hey, give me all like literally all of your information and then we'll like let you live here and work here and be officially like not not documented, but in yes. this weird in between space where you're not going to be retaliated against for for doing this. And then, you know, power changes hands and suddenly they've got this weapon that they can use against all these these people, which sucks. Yeah. Um, so that that is the track that then Austerlitz sets off on and kind of the worldview that he and maybe Sebald also shares, which is this not distrust, but kind of deep sadness about how uh, society can kind of defeat its own goals. Like it can it can stump it can trip itself and its best laid plans can be kind of turned inward mm -hmm. and cause a lot of pain. Um, so when I, I can, I can see how the generation after the Nazis could have those two dueling ideas of the good and the bad that like the state and that society can do when it decides to. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Um, so the latter half of this book and really where I feel like it took off for me as a reader, cause the style of the book is really dense. The language is really, uh, purposely dense and kind of free-flowing at times. Um, I don't think it really clicked for me until he actually sets off for Czechoslovakia, for Prague, to track down any f information about his family. He does this after going to a train station in Liverpool and having like a vision of a young boy being given to to foster parents and like realizing that he was on a train from Prague to Britain when he was a kid. It's a couple oh, pages like long. Digging and, up buried memories yeah. of who he really is. Yeah. And it doesn't quite have a, you know, it's not like he gets hit on hit on the head and has some sort of revelation there, but that would be funny. It's he does like, have a seizure at one point and like fall. If somebody in the train station had like a big like plank of wood over their Donk. shoulder and they swung it, like they turned and they hit him in the head, and then he was like, "Oh my goodness!" 
yeah. I'm a different person. I'm a different person now. I'm no longer David. Um, That's how every movie should start. I get. I bet you're wondering how I got here. <laughs> uh, and so he sets off to Prague, having had this revelation, and he goes to like a hall of records, and they're like, "Yeah, not too many people named Austerlitz. It's kind of weird, huh?" Mm-hmm. Um, and he, they narrow it down to like 11 or 12 people. One is the residence of this single woman for whom the ages kind of line up for who might be his mom. Okay. He goes there. Lo and behold, the person living there is not his mom, but the his like nurse growing up, like his like nanny nurse. I don't know what the term is. Like nanny nurse. Nanny nurse. <laughs> nanny like, nurse is right. She worked for the family and was friends with the family to raise him. This is kind of an au pair kind of situation maybe she may have also literally nursed him i don't know yeah i don't know i can't tell little Mm -hmm. that could just be my own ignorance of what was in the book but (laughs) like what the connotation of nurse was in the book is what i'm saying okay so Um, possibly like a live-in nurse nanny surrogate yes for sure sure because his mom was this opera singer performer and so there was a lot of time spent as he was a kid, like with Vera, who took care of him. Mm-hmm. And his dad owned like or worked at like a slipper factory, I think. Gotta make them slippers. Gotta make them slippers. Time to make the slippers. Um, And so what he learns from Vera is he starts talking to her about his life before he was shipped off to Britain and having all sorts of um, very potent uh revelations like oh yeah wow i do understand check that's weird or um i do remember these french phrases that you taught me and she's kind of like so excited to see him that she's walking him through his childhood and he's like literally uh it's coming to him in in waves i mm, i find that a little suspect maybe because i don't remember spanish i spent like four years in spanish in high school and i don't i remember some of it but like i wouldn't but I mean, I he know. is so really is... smart in the book, I though, guess. Andrew. So maybe he's just smarter than you, and that's why. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, where we get to with Vera is that we are told that his dad, when when stuff went bad in Czechoslovakia as the Germans started moving in, his dad ended up going off to France and was never really heard from again. Um, and. His mom, who was Jewish, you get this. It actually it it stinks because it it it's just really moving and and detailed. In context, you're like, oh, is this like the Handmaid's Tale? Like you just watch like the steps of like bank accounts start to close. You're not allowed to shop here. You're not allowed mm-hmm. to walk here. You're mm-hmm. not allowed to do anything but this job. And soon enough, like you just can't leave the house. Um. And she is struck with this like intense depression and she's worried that things are going to go really bad. So she sends her her kid off to uh, Britain and things get worse for her in Prague for for his mom, Agata. And there's this announcement that like, hey, we're going to take you somewhere so that you can go live somewhere where you can live your life. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And she is taken to so uh, Agata go live somewhere else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Andrew. She's taken to a ghetto east of Prague, mm-hmm. which turns out to then be like the next step to like a concentration camp. Oh, yeah, funny. So it's not funny. 
She does not get to go somewhere else. It's pretty bad. Okay. Um, Thanks for sneaking that up on me. Well, I thought you could see the tea leaves. Mm. I thought you could read them. But in my defense, that name is kind of funny. Yeah, it's a funny name. Your name's Mylon Craig William Getting. Getting what? Am I right? Yeah, and so I'm just kind of tuned into names that can be parts of sentences. You're such a cunning ham. Mm-hmm. That you see are. that doesn't work. Doesn't it? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. <laughs> it just doesn't. It doesn't work. You sure? No, it doesn't. Okay. Yeah. You cunning ham. Craig getting surprised by how his pun doesn't work on me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, so he goes to this town where she was sent and there's this this is where that seven page sentence comes in um what happens is he (laughs) this chat is really wigging us out andrew's like mixing it up i'm kind of like fomenting uh like the bill insurrection no i don't want it um Katie says, getting called Bill. Brittany says, I like your joke, Bill. This is really bad. Hegemon54 says, good one, Mylon. So this is... This is really working out for all of us. This is great. (laughs) Um, This this is a really sad book at times. I'm glad we're having a good time to kind of balance it out, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll take that heat. I'll take that Bill heat. Mm -hmm. Um, So he goes to uh, Terezen or the Teresian dot area which starts as a ghetto becomes a camp and he ends up researching this video i think this is a real thing where after the population had started to decrease due to actual just like terrible living conditions and and people not being able to survive in them Mm -hmm. um the red cross or something like that was going to come in and do an inspection and this is something you hear about in like terrible situations today where it's like, we're going to send in UN people to inspect how terrible you're being. Right. And they had enough notice, the Nazis did, to like clean it up. Yep. And like put in movie theaters uh-huh. and restaurants and signs for all the movies everyone loved mm-hmm. and shot like this propaganda video that the narr- that Austerlitz isn't sure if it's his mom on that video. That or is not a lot point. of time. Yeah. To give people like if you can do all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's it's messed up. Um mm. and there's this sentence um that starts with it seems unpardonable to me today, and this is Austerlitz talking, that I had blocked off the investigation of my most distant past for so many years, not on principle to be sure, but still of my own accord, and that now it is too late for me to seek out Adler, who's another friend of his who had lived in London until his death in the summer of nineteen eighty eight. And talk to him about the extraterritorial, extraterritorial place where at the time, as I think I've mentioned before, said Austerlitz, some 60,000 people were crammed together in an area little more than a square kilometer in size. And then for seven pages, yeah, no, it, it just talks keeps about going. all of the people that were there, all of the things that they were forced to do and places where they were forced to work. And then after that goes on for about four mm, pages, um, and it's pretty rough reading. Um, then it gets into the conditions of what was happening to them and how they were feeling, and then talks about how it got to about 20,000, and then the incinerators in the crematorium, and how it was supervised, and it keeps going, and it keeps getting worse, and then the propaganda film, and the sentence is still going, and it's still going, and it's talking about the Red Cross visit, and then it ends with... Had a, 
The, the video had apparently turned up in the British-occupied zone after the war, although he, Adler himself, said Austerlitz never saw it and thought it was now lost without a trace. And so this seven-page brief on what happened to these people ends with, and we and a bunch of people never heard of it. Uh-huh. That seems like the point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there's a couple other passages I don't know if I have them at hand that have to do with how we take and process history, um, and whether or not we can ever truly grasp what happened. The earlier in the book, um, this guy Andre that he's been referencing is one of his professors gives him this whole speech on a thing uh, in the 19th century the battle of austerlitz actually is a place and um how he could never really tell you how bad it was that day he can like give you the images that you're prepared to receive of what warfare was in the 19th century the fallen drummer and the horse who got his legs cut off and you know all of a sudden a boy was on the battlefield but you can't really it all becomes clichés and you can't actually comprehend what happened um and the quote is our concern with history is a concern with preformed images already imprinted on our brains while the truth lies elsewhere away from it all and that gets again that's the point i alluded to at the top of the show where sebold really seems concerned with our inability to talk about how bad this was it was so bad and such a big operation that to lend any language to it feels insufficient. Well, and it's, I mean, especially if you're trying to do what history is supposed to do, which is to teach people what is good to like what works and what doesn't. Yep. Yep. <laughs> is like, it is, it is really difficult to impossible to actually like you, you can teach people after the fact, like, the events and the facts of what happened, but you can't teach them like how it felt or you can't teach them like the, the enormity of it. And so that's the, I went down a bit of a research rabbit hole, like looking at, cause I, I know I knew Germany and a lot of other European countries had more stringent, like anti Nazi, anti whatever yeah. laws um, than the, the United States does. And it, I don't know, like it, it's, you can't teach people like how it felt like you, you can't, you can't make them learn that lesson firsthand. So like the best you can try and do is like codify it into law. And like, maybe that makes it so that there are certain kinds of conversations people can't have or whatever, but yeah, you just kind of have to trust that it's, it was done for a good reason, I guess. I feel like I'm, I don't know. No, no, because then the, the role of works like this book is to at least give you, you know, to attempt to give you an emotional sense of what happened or or how it might feel to be one of the 68ers mm-hmm. and not know how to process this, not know how to act on it, not know politically what to do after, you know, aside from the laws that already exist, um, maybe I should tell this person's story so this is where this book uh feels like what if it is just about a real person like austerlitz might as well be a real person for whom this stuff happened except it is kind of like he's got some flights of fancy um he there are like 
he doesn't really have any friends in the book. There are there are two uh, women who help him out when he's in kind of like he has a mental breakdown or two <laughs> throughout the book. Austerlitz does. Mm-hmm. Um, and like people come and save him and help him recuperate. But they're not meaningful relationships other than the one that he has with the author and the one that he is constantly pursuing with the parents that he never knew. Right. Um, he does end up going to Paris uh, to try and track down information on his dad. But anything that might be there is like ensconced in like a Byzantine record keeping system that mm-hmm. he talks about as like a tomb for information. Um, and he never really learns much about him. Um, and again, that, that is, we, we talked about that earlier of just uh, the book seems Sebold seems particularly interested in um, not, not thinking about the Holocaust as a singular unique thing. Of course that it, it is, Right, it was a a distinct thing that happened, but thinking about all of the smaller, less obviously atrocious things that happen along the way uh, to build something like that, right? Um, and the systems in place, and the the human behavior that begets those systems. I like how it talks about architecture in the book, though I will never be able to do it justice, just because. Um, this idea that there are like ghosts of people past people's past in buildings and and what we have dug up to put that building there or or whatever is a thing that certainly in in America we do a pretty bad job of talking about because before the 1700s it was not a bunch of european settlers places and then as we talk about 20th century and 21st century stuff, we're like, oh, we tore down that thing from the 1800s mm-hmm. that somebody's grandpa built. And mm-hmm. now it's a 7-Eleven or now it's <laughs> the new school that and the old school is only 60 years old. And the the places being dealt with in this book are like hundreds and thousands of years old. Um, and like, I don't know what. What is our relationship to the people who lived there, and, and mm-hmm. what is their relationship to us? He talks about the dead as if they uh, can't see us or can't relate to us, but not that they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, is an interesting way to think about it. Um, yeah, that's I don't know. I I liked the, the I talked about that thing where some of the reviews are like, what parts of it are real and what aren't, um, and. Uh, when they're reviewing Austerlitz, some of the folks uh, were like, oh, this is a great new Sebold book that you need to you need to read this thing because there's nothing else like it. And then I read this review that was like, he's got some tricks. He he uses these are the same tricks from his other books. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this guy writing for The Guardian said, none of this is is to suggest that Sebold should switch to writing football novels. I would read Matt Christopher books written in really obscure, like German language, all in one big sentence about how the game went. That would be really good, actually. Yeah, and I don't quite know what the point is there because then he goes on to say, like, he's exploring territory that's worth exploring. Um, there's a lot of motion behind the book, but this guy seemed a little less convinced that 
the style was necessary. Sure. I think. Yeah. Um, the style is so strong that it could become self-parody without it knowing mm -hmm. to be this kind of long-winded academic trying to unpack his own emotions. Yeah, and I, I am I, susceptible as any longtime listener, I guess we'll know, to um, getting irritated when someone's style is getting in the way of what they're trying to say. Like a lot, some it sounds like the style in this case a lot of the times is in service of what is being said. But yes. if somebody is, I don't know, if somebody is like putting on airs trying to write something, like write a great, like a capital G great novel. No, and it gets in the way like that. That's the kind of thing that can bug me. What I actually dug about this book is it felt for the themes and the topics it was discussing. It actually felt rather slim and focused. It's not I didn't find it very long. I think it's maybe 300 pages and it's not epic in scope. It's just epic in feeling. That's a is that a thing that I said out loud? Yeah, it sure now? is. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's pretty confined to this dude, um, Austerlitz, though from a stylistic perspective that is awkward at times, it's secondhand. The whole story is secondhand, like the author, right, is hearing it from Austerlitz. And then there are times when Austerlitz is telling the the author what someone else said to him. Mm -hmm. So the long section about his mom and what happened to his mom is related to Austerlitz by Vera. So there are literally passages in the book where Yacht, something, something Vera said, Austerlitz told me, comma, and then continuing in Vera's first person voice. Okay. So, hey, Andrew said, Susanna, Craig said, is, and it gets, it, I don't know if it doesn't read as awkward in German, maybe. Maybe there's like a grammatical thing that makes it a little less bumpy. I mean, I, I in a book about history and about passing things down, I guess it also is useful to outline the path of information. It's just that, like, there's no quotation marks. Right. No, I saw that, but. <laughs> so, like, it looks not right, even though I guess, like, it is. Thematically, it is, even though stylistically, it's like a little awkward. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the book. There is a section about writer's block that I think I want to go out on because I want to get your thoughts on writer's block. Okay. I've never had it. Never? <laughs> no. Okay. That's a lie. Great. <laughs> um, so, Austerlitz talks about what really led to him going on this journey uh, was this period where, and this happens throughout the book, he has like a physical ailment as a result of this anxiety about who he is and where he came from. And at one point, he's this guy who loves reading, loves writing, loves opining about things, and he literally can't write anymore. He can't even engage with words anymore. And this is the passage. If language may be regarded as an old city full of streets and squares, nooks and crannies, with some quarters dating from far back in time while others have been torn down, cleaned up, and rebuilt, and with suburbs reaching further and further into the surrounding country. Mm -hmm. Then I was like a man who has been abroad a long time and cannot find his way through this urban sprawl anymore, mm -hmm. no longer knows what a bus stop is for or what a backyard is or a street <laughs> junction or an avenue or a bridge. Tell me about writer's block, Andrew. No, I mean, that sounds about right. I was, I was, the, 
his likening of language to a town was getting me to figure out. So like the old parts of the city that haven't been replaced are like the weird old phrases that, that are yeah. still floating around yeah. that nobody knows about. And then by the time you get out to the suburbs, you're talking about like swole and stan and memes and like all the weird <laughs> no those are in the city and those are in the parts of the city that get turned over all the time mm. because it's like it's the new it's the language that is like immediate yeah but then those words have to go live somewhere oh those words move out to the suburbs and go right. oh, cool mm-hmm. <laughs> okay <laughs> no yeah, i like buy nobody, that <laughs> like on fleek used to be so cool but now <laughs> then it moved out into the suburbs and got a dog <laughs> I do really like thinking of language, though, as like as geography, because then there's also it's a good metaphor for like taking language and idioms from other cultures and like, well, I just I moved into this neighborhood, even though I shouldn't have or I bought up all the property there and like turned it into condos. Um, But no, I want you to tell me about writer's block, this thing you've never experienced. I I can't tell you about it. I've never had it. If you ever had, how would you describe it? It's Andrew's a professional writer. This is why I'm asking him. It's it's you know, like for for me, what happens a lot of the time because I, I'm not writing like fiction, so like my mm. brain engine is not the thing that has to like <laughs> generate a story or whatever. Like the story is is there to be told usually, but for sure. me, it takes the form of knowing what I want to say and just like having a really hard time. Like I can think what I want to say, but I have a difficult time actually getting it down in a way that I feel like is as good as what I thought it was going to be, Sure, if that makes any sense. Can you turn your editor brain off when you're writing? Because you do a lot of editing of other people's stuff. Yeah, like I, I know some people say you know if you're if you're just trying to write like just write and write and write and whatever don't go back and don't think about it too much but i have a hard time doing that because i know that i'm not gonna go back and give it a really thorough (laughs) edit pass actually so like if there's there would be more crappy first drafty stuff that would make it through the final copy if i was not kind of like self-editing i have gotten when i do like grant writing and and project proposal writing for work i have gotten better about uh being egoless and saying yeah i need someone to look at the like being more willing to share a dirty draft because i know i'm just gonna like i'm just gonna dirty draft i know that my brain (laughs) i know that my brain will fill in things that aren't there Mm -hmm. i like i'll skip words sometimes because i just presume they're there if i read those sentence again my brain just puts it back in there right and so i need someone to look at it and be like craig this is dumb this Mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense um so I've got I've tried to get rid of my ego and welcome the editing process. Okay. This it's hard. It is it hard. Is and hard. I I do more editing than writing nowadays, so Sure. I get how it can feel like a personal attack to have <laughs> your prose <laughs> scrutinized, sure. but sure. but ideally it should be like a good faith exchange where the editor is not trying to punish the writer and the writer is not taking everything super personally ideally and in the end it ends up like better yeah uh, yeah Yeah. um well yeah that's this book that it's a i really there's a couple things that will stay with me like image wise that i liked about it and and the last one that i'll mention before we close out is just he talks about as we've been talking about memories in the past and and ghosts of different parts of history he austerlitz relays a story that someone told him about ghosts in the in whatever town they're in um 
are smaller than they were when they were alive. And mm-hmm. this idea that like without the spark of life in you, you like shrink and all this idea that all ghosts are just like tiny versions of the people that they used to be in a way that when you use shrink as a, as a, an idiom for like shrinking away from something or shrinking like out of fear or out of sadness, mm-hmm. um, that that is like a literal physical existence was, was really powerful. There's a lot of that scattered throughout this book. You just kind of have to pick your way through pages of architecture um, talking that I don't always understand. <laughs> uh, and the photographs will just close with this. The photographs lend this like, that's where maybe it's like, what what are these photographs actually? It's like of people, of landscapes, of there's a page that's just a bunch of owl eyes at one point because mm-hmm. he's outside and stuff's looking at him. So he took photos of owl eyes. Um presumably that's to lend like a reality to the to the narrative that the words uh are kind of a little buttoned up against. Yeah. Are you sure? Maybe that's about World War II as well, because that was the oh, war sure. between the Axis powers and the Owl Eyes. <laughs> I think we're done here. I think we're done. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being in the chat. Um, my name is Craig. That was Andrew. Thanks, Bill. If- Back to you, Bill. <laughs> uh, and we talked about Austerlitz by W.G. Sebold. Um, thanks to Maria, uh, who, when she wrote in to share this book with us, called it a beautiful book that I first read in graduate school and then taught in a creative writing course. I think it would actually be a really fun book to talk about in a in a writing class. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, this uh, this podcast wouldn't exist without our Patreon supporters, so thanks everyone. Yeah, thanks uh, guys for giving us money at Overdue Pod. Nope, Patreon.com slash Overdue Pod. We're on Facebook and Twitter. I'm just going to try and ride this out. My good, my good, my good, good joke has you shook. Look at you. Facebook.com <laughs> slash overdue pod and Twitter.com slash overdue pod. Uh, you can send us an email at overdue pod at gmail.com. Andrew, where do they need to go to find out more about the show? Overduepodcast.com. I don't know. You know the thing. You know the thing. It's you all know up there. The drill. Um, so this is our May bonus episode. Well, I guess our April is it bonus. April. It's April, April bonus episode. I got to change the name of the thing. Um, it's our April bonus episode, so it'll go up for patrons soon, like and then ASAP. yeah, ASAP, and then regular people later. But for May, our first episode of Stop Homer Time is going to publish as a bonus episode for for the folks not at the ten dollar level who've been getting it month to month. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about it's been a fun project. I'm excited for people to hear it. Yeah, um, so that's that's the deal. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for showing up and chatting with us, people who did that. It was it was fun to have it open to more people. Uh, if you are it's much if, rowdier than it normally yeah, is, if you were not here and you would like to join us, um, it's open to Patreon supporters at the five dollar and up range. Yeah, uh, thank you guys so much. You make the show possible. I just winked at the camera. You would see it if you paid us five dollars. <laughs> okay, everybody, thanks for listening. We will talk to you soon. Until then, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.